The Yakar and Coca Report, episode number 15. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Okay, hello everybody and welcome to episode 15 of the Akkad and Coca Report. Uh, we are very pleased uh, to have as our guest today Dr. Mary Ruert. Dr. Ruert is a scientist, ethicist, and libertarian author and activist. She obtained a PhD in biochemistry from Michigan State University and subsequently worked as a research scientist for the Upjohn Pharmaceutical Company for 19 years. In 1995, she focused her career on writing, consulting, and teaching. She is the author of the best-selling book, Healing Our World, now in its fourth edition. She is currently chair of Liberty International and secretary of the, of the uh, Foundation for a Free Society. But she is here today to talk to us about her latest book, Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It. This book examines the history of the last six decades of drug regulations and highlights the many unintended consequences of the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Administration Act, also known as the Kefauver-Harris Amendments, which still govern the approval of new treatments today. Mary, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Mary, thanks so much for thanks so much for coming on. So I just wanted a tremendous book, uh, incredibly insightful. I had a lot of fun reading it. Uh, so encourage everyone to uh, to certainly buy it and and, and read it. Uh, but I just thought I'd provide a little bit of context. It's a, it's a, it's a very uh, wide ranging book that covers a number of different things. So I wanted to give some context to this short little discussion uh, we're going to have. And and so it concerns the FDA and regulation of the FDA and in terms of how we got here, I guess it was, I guess in the 19, in the early 1900s, um, it was it was kind of like a wild 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 west, meaning uh, uh, companies could put uh, could put anything they wanted in, into a, into a bottle and sell it. Um, they didn't even have to label what was in the bottle. So the initial you know, in the early 1900s, there were some laws that were passed that said, hey, look, you have to at least say uh, uh, what was in the what was in whatever was being sold. So. You know, famously, Coca-Cola, you know, uh, one of the ingredients of Coca-Cola was cocaine. And uh, nobody knew that because it wasn't labeled, labeled as stuff. So the 1906 Act, you know, that was fought to the nail industry mandated that these ingredients needed to be, uh, needed to be uh, in there. Um, then subsequently, there was, you know, uh, there was, a, there was a tra another tragedy that happened in the 1930s uh, involving a drug called sulfonilamide, the sulfur group of uh, antibiotics. Uh, uh, obviously, kill bacteria, um, uh, but, unfor but unfortunately, um, in an attempt to formulate a certain uh, 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 compound uh, that was uh, that children liked, um, it was it was dissolved in diethylene glycol. At the time, diethylene glycol was not known to, uh, you know, widely be toxic uh, by shutting down your kidneys, and uh, a number of poisonings happened because of that. Um, and so, again, it was kind of this these 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 uh, these events that uh, that caused more and more and more regulation. Uh, finally, and this is, and you write about this very well <laughs> in your in your book. Um, there was this last set of amendments that really created the FDA as we know it now. The amendments in the 1960s, and that was almost definitely a direct result of the thalidomide uh, tragedy, where uh, this was a drug that was used in Europe as a sleeping uh, as a barbiturate for pregnant women because it didn't have some of the bad effects of some of the other opioids and unbeknownst, 
uh, to many, um, or unbeknownst to anyone, uh, thalidomide had effects in terms of development of the fetus, and you had thousands of children born across the globe that uh, didn't have limbs and arms and stuff. And of course, in the United States, there was a there was a famous, now famous uh, woman, and the heroine of the story, <laughs> named uh, Frances Kelsey, who, um, who, who for no particular great reason, she just uh, felt that we needed more data and just kept delaying the approval of the drug. And uh, because of that delay in approval, and it hurt me to write this because I'm, so, I, you know, I hate regulations. <laughs> I, I had to, I had to write this in a little blog that I wrote that, uh, you know, this 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 regulatory delay probably resulted in you know thousands of uh, American children not suffering the fate of uh, folks within the globe. And soon after that, you know, this is a very political climate. This story was leaked to the Washington Post um, by the by politicians who were pushing for increased regulations, and we have the Kefauver. Harris amendments that passed in the 19, in 1962, I believe. Um, so Mary, what, you know, uh, that's the context of it. It sounds like a pretty good story here that for you know, regulations and keeping, keeping us safe, uh, what, what problem could you possibly have with all this? <laughs> well, unfortunately, regulations can have side effects that are just as deadly as bad drugs. And in the case of the 62 amendments, uh, what the research shows is that we've, had all of us have lost five to ten years of our lives because of these amendments and of course they weren't meant to do that but why did they well they increased the time it takes for a drug to get from the lab bench to the marketplace by almost a decade and then they also slashed innovation probably at least 80 percent I estimated at 50 percent in the book to be conservative and when you uh, when you add this up along with the um, suppression of information, the censoring of information that the FDA is allowed to do for commercial speech, uh, you find that things like aspirin would have saved about 1.7 million lives if we had been allowed to talk about it and talk about the studies, the published studies that had been done earlier. So when you add this all up, <laughs> what you see is about half the People have died since 1962, lost about 11 years of their lives, or if you spread it over the whole population, about 5.5. And this doesn't even count the big shift from inexpensive prevention uh, to expensive uh, treatment that these amendments caused. And I think if you are able to factor that in, you'd probably double these numbers. I, I can't prove that. The numbers are pretty solid for the 5.5 years for each of us, but this doubling is something I've just had to estimate without having as, as uh, maybe as definitive studies as we've seen in the drug industry. Mary, you, um, and we'll go through some of these examples in more detail, but pr you provide example after example of drugs that, you know, were delayed or whose approval was delayed um, and and um, and consequently as as you said there can be a calculus made about how you know uh, how many lives were lost as a result and so forth but what i'd like you to talk about a little bit which um, caught my attention is um, that these 1962 amendments introduced uh, not just a safety component but an effectiveness component so that by now everybody expects the fda to approve drugs on the basis of effectiveness and, and that came about very quickly because it actually had nothing to do with the thalidomide um, uh, you, you know, problem or, or tragedy. Yeah. There, there was actually, the, the legislation was there ready to be, to be passed. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about, about that and how that came about? 
yes, the amendments actually were floating around Congress for about three years, and they were the brainchild of Senator Kefauver. He basically, he was concerned because physicians refused to prescribe very many generic drugs, and the reason was that the generic drugs were not therapeutically equivalent all the time to the brand name drug, and that was because the formulation was different. So what he thought is that if all of the generic drugs and the brand name drugs had to show equivalence that, you know, people would buy more generic drugs. So he was really focusing on the effectiveness component. And really, if you, you think about it for a moment, the kinds of safety problems we had for the most part were not due to problems with the manufacturer not doing appropriate tests. It was more usually the case that we just didn't have enough science. And so that's still true today. And so in addition to this incredibly onerous uh, number of studies that the FDA now requires to show effectiveness, the safety studies were also ramped up, but they really didn't increase safety because the problem wasn't that we weren't doing enough testing. The problem was we just didn't know any better. And that's, that's true today. Right. You make a, a very good case, or at least you, you show examples, and, and you support, you know, everything that you, that you write in your book is supported by, by a lot of references and, and citations and so forth, that even if thalidomide had been tested, it probably would not have been, it, it, was, it would have been very hard to detect the effect, the uh, teratogenic effect of thalidomide uh, with animal studies, um, because, you know, for whatever reasons, the, the conditions are not, uh, are not suitable for, for causing, for revealing the kind of kinds of problems that uh, eventually emerged, mm -hmm. and, um, and and so yes, I, I think it's 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 always the case that they, the 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 science is, is the problem because is it in the interest of a pharmaceutical company that wants to remain in business to produce a drug that is unsafe? No, I mean, no, that's a, that's a, right. <laughs> it's a lowball question here. Yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah. I see a lot of people on the internet saying, oh, you know, um, the company that put out Vioxx, uh, which was later withdrawn, made a lot of money on it, but they lost a lot of money too. If you actually calculate all the costs of, of having to, you know, settle on these lawsuits and things of this nature, you find that they lost an incredible amount of money. And um, most people just don't go to the trouble to look at all the costs, but it's not worth it for a drug company to put something unsafe on the market. On the other hand, because the timeline is now so long, it went from four years before the amendments to, at one point, 14 years. Uh, you know, when you're working on a drug for that long, the people in the company that's working on it, you know, think of it as their child. And if they see anything that, that could be interpreted uh, as bad for the drug, they try to interpret it a different way. And this is what happened with Vioxx as well. There was a study done uh, comparing Vioxx to another compound, and it was found that it looked like the Vioxx group was having more heart attacks, but the way the company chose to interpret that study was that the other compound was preventing heart attacks, you see. Naproxen, and, I think it was naproxen, right, which yes, was the control yes, group, yes. That's right. So, so um, obviously, um, 
there's a human tendency not to not to think that your child, which of course the drug becomes after you've worked on it for 10 years, is doing anything wrong. And this is aggravated by this long extended timeline. When it was only four years, it was much easier to say, oops, this isn't working the way we thought. Let's dump it and do another one. And it costs so much too, because it's not just, you know, you might say, well, four years, 14 years is about what, three and a half times the cost or whatever. It's much greater than that because companies have a really big incentive to be the first on the market. So they compress their studies to keep that timeline as short as possible. And so what's happening is the cost of meeting FDA regulation is going up exponentially every year. And that's because the FDA keeps requiring more patients in a trial, more tests, et cetera, et cetera. And this has all been worked out by Tufts University, which, of course, has a, a very good drug development study group. So, uh, you know, if, if we didn't have all this excess regulation, uh, we would have the same amount of safety, but we would have drugs getting to the market quicker you know, life-saving drugs, getting to the market quicker, we'd have more innovation, and we wouldn't be wasting all this money on something that really doesn't give us any increase in safety and effectiveness. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 stories, you, uh, the stories you tell really illustrate this uh, incredibly well uh, throughout the last few decades. I mean, um, one of the stories that particularly struck me was the story of uh, the AIDS epidemic um, and uh, the fact that, you know, you had folks that were dying and uh, there was this rush to try to um, there was this massive demand from of course uh, uh, patients um, who were terminally ill to get new drugs in and the, the, the kind of bars that existed uh, uh -huh. that were that were and the walls that were put up by the FDA were, were pretty darn impressive I actually called and spoke to one of my mentors um, at uh, Temple in Philadelphia who was kind of on the front lines of the 19 in the late 80s uh, dealing with this and you know she, she echoed a lot of these Sentiments that you know, there's this massive desire for drugs, and uh, and you had a lot of uh, 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 barriers that were uh, put into play. You had, for instance, uh, you know, this 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 whole discussion about surrogate endpoints, and you know, you know CD4, whether or not CD4 cell, uh, uh, cell, uh, CD4 numbers were, could be used as a surrogate endpoint. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's a very very uh, it, it's impressive, and, and and the thing that struck me the most. <laughs> was you know this movie the, the Matthew McConaughey movie the Dallas Buyers Club illustrates it nicely as well is that we just as you're mentioning we talk a lot about um, about that I, I had no idea about the extent of it um, oh, yeah. well the bigger problem too was what they did is they hired black market chemists to make the very drugs that we were working on in the pharmaceutical industry and when we were finally given permission to test our drugs and patients by the FDA Every AIDS patient in the country that wanted them had already had them, and they were resistant. So we had to wait for new diagnoses. And this is happening today, too. ALS patients are making the drugs that are in clinical testing in their kitchens in the hope that, you know, they will be able to, um, you know, at least help themselves for a few years until the drug comes out. And it's, it's very sad because, obviously, when you're making a drug in your kitchen, it's probably not going to be as pure, as safe. You don't really have the equipment to test it in the way you should. So it's really sad that patients can't get these drugs earlier. And that's what all the right to try um, legislation was about. Um, and of course, that came from the fact that the cancer patients sued the FDA because they, wanted, they didn't want to go to the black market. And uh, courts told them, hey, you don't have the right as an American to save your life with unapproved drugs. 
Yeah. Yeah. No. And so right to try is another version of that. Of course, it's passed state to state and now has passed nationally. But the problem with right to try is that it has an Achilles heel. If, if a company actually negotiates directly with a patient, not through the FDA, uh, the FDA might not like that too much. And they have the power to punish companies that they feel aren't accepting their guidelines. And they'll simply drag their feet on an approval or the many steps along the way. And uh, what's, but what's heartening is there is another initiative coming along from the Heartland Institute called Free to Choose Medicine that doesn't have this Achilles heel. It's very similar in many ways, but once a drug is in the free to try, or free to, um, yes, free to choose track, you know, then it doesn't have to stay in the FDA's good graces. So it can escape. <laughs> and, and in doing that, of course, there are some risks, but there are also some benefits. And, and uh, the nice thing about having a two-track system is that that will allow us to see how it works. And uh, hopefully, hopefully that will also pass. <laughs> we'll so, see. <laughs> so here you touch on, a, on, a, on an aspect of... Um that you develop in your book um, about this attitude of the FDA towards the, towards the pharmaceutical industry um, of being very, very demanding and sometimes very vindictive to the point that um, you say many pharmaceutical um, employees or executives are afraid to say anything bad about the FDA or to voice any concern for fear of reprisals and, and, and many instances are well documented and as a result of that, they start hiring a lot of FDA employees yes. uh, to, to sort of protect themselves. I want to read a, a passage from your book um, that touches on this. You say, before the amendments passed, 10% of FDA officials leaving the agency from 1959 to 1963 went into the pharmaceutical industry. By 1969, that percentage had increased to an incredible 76%. Mm -hmm. Right yes. after the so 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 now you have this revolving door of of people working for industry going to the FDA and out of the FDA back to the industry, yes. and this this formation of the cartel that really didn't exist before right. the regulations um, uh, were passed or at least before they were strengthened to that extent, mm -hmm. and um, and that so it's almost like a self fulfilling prophecy because the FDA starts with a presumption of that uh, the industry is not trustworthy. And, mm -hmm. and treats them as such. And mm -hmm. then it's, it creates this cartel where it becomes untrustworthy because yeah, then you have all this, you know, this uh, incestuous relationship between, um, between the two. And um, so I, I thought that was very fascinating and very well documented. And it played a role in the Vioxx. You mentioned that uh, in regards to the Vioxx mm -hmm. um, problem in terms of the fact that I think it was to appease um, uh, the people who were demanding faster approvals, the FDA, right? Was it, was well, it the case that they, they... Yes, let me... Yeah, Go ahead, yes, please. Yeah. This is really, because this really speaks to what you're talking about. Um, what happened, because of the amendments creating so many problems, like delayed approvals, um, the Congress passed some Band-Aids, as I call them, and one of the Band-Aids was the 1992 Prescription Drug User Fee Act. So companies could pay, it started out at $100,000, uh, to allow the FDA to hire more examiners so they could get their drug out faster. The, the review by the FDA at that time was taking a couple years. So that was part of what was lengthening the timeline. 
Now, today, about 50 to 70% of the salaries of the FDA examiners that approve drugs are paid through these user fees, which are now over $2 million. That's really so now, incredible. It's, yeah. really, it's astounding. I, saw, I read that in your book. I wasn't aware of it. It's astounding. Yeah, so the FDA has a huge conflict of interest now. And Vioxx, um, you know, uh, had uh, an examiner, David Graham, who said, hey, we really need to uh, look at this carefully because it looks like Vioxx could be inducing heart attacks. And his supervisor said, well, we have to approve this drug because the pharmaceutical industry is now our client. And of course, <laughs> that's because they're paying their bills, right? So again, that's a big conflict of interest. I think had that had Vioxx come along before the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, it might not have gotten out. But, um, you know, the FDA is going to be most receptive to the people that pay their salaries. In the past, that's been Congress. And Congress never wants to see drug side effects uh, be uh, coming to the fore uh, in terms of the knowledge of the American public. But the truth of the matter is every drug has side effects. Every drug has some people who won't, you know, won't benefit from the drug. It's just kind of the way it is, you know. So the, if, if the FDA only approved drugs that were totally safe and totally effective, it would make no approvals at all. So it's, instead it lengthened the timeline so it could convince the Congress that if a bad drug came up, it wasn't their fault. They had done their due diligence. <laughs> and now with the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, we have the industry basically supporting uh, the FDA. And that, like I said, is a huge ethical conflict of interest. Yeah, it's, it's, it also points to the arbitrariness of what gets kind of accelerated approval and doesn't, right? So just, yes. it's just like, so, you know, it, there's so much politics and so much who you, you know, who you know, and how you, if you do the application a certain way, if the FDA participate, if the R FDA need, really needs to be participating in the clinical trial design, because if they don't participate in clinical trial design, you just show up with this trial they're like, well, you didn't approve it through us. So, and, you know, and again, just to go back to the, to the AIDS uh, uh, issue, one of the interesting things in speaking to, you know, in speaking to, um, her, her name is Dr. Tadaldi, she's one of the HIV uh, doctors at Temple. She said that, you know, if, if, if not for the group of folks that HIV was affecting at the time, which was, uh, which was, you know, yes, uh, there was a poor segment, but there was also a very well-connected, politically influential, white, straight men, uh, wait, sorry, white gay men yes. who, were, who, had, who had a lot of connections, that a lot of the approval, the accelerated approvals that happened around that, that was pushed by buyers clubs, that was pushed by folks with political influence, wouldn't have happened. So right. that makes your point, that makes your point so much more salient to now, right? Meaning what, what is not being approved right now um, because, you know, there's a small minority group that, you know, all, all the, the, the folks that have diseases are these small groups of folks that have diseases, whether it be Duchenne's or, 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 or whatever, who are not politically connected, who aren't influential, who aren't good folks to put on TV, right? And, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, what, so, what, you know, this is, it really speaks to the need for urgent um, uh, reform, um, you know, uh, now uh, so that uh, we can kind of prevent the problems that are existing right now. So uh, right. you know, it's not just right. a problem in the past. Yeah. And I'm hopeful. And the reason I'm hopeful is that it's not just you and I or, and uh, other patients that are being affected. It's Congress. Yeah. It's the regulators. 
Right. Everyone's affected because you can't take a drug that hasn't been invented. <laughs> so what is happening with this loss of innovation that we're undergoing is that there are drugs that could save people's lives that are left on the shelf, the laboratory shelf, and never see the light of day, and no one knows it. And, of course, uh, you know, I had my own personal story on that. The FDA right. called me up one day and said, hey, we understand you just filed a patent for prostaglandins and liver disease. Right. And, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure your audience mostly knows what prostaglandins are, but they're called eicosanoids today. And uh, fish oil, which a lot of people take, are the building blocks of what we call the good eicosanoids. <laughs> you know, they kind of work in tandem to balance things out. So. Um, I said, yes, that's true. I did just file that patent. They said, we're so excited. There's nothing for fibrotic liver disease. You know, 100,000 people die every year. All we can offer them is bed rest. So we're really excited. We want to help you get this drug to market. Well, the problem is when you have a really new drug, you don't know how much you need to give. You don't know how long you need to give it. And since liver disease, uh, you know, develops over years and years, uh, it's probably going to take a little while to reverse it. So you need to obviously know how long you need to treat. You don't know how many patients you need in your study to get the statistical significance that the FDA wants. And if you guess wrong on these studies that take years, uh, the company pretty, pretty early on figured out, oh, if we don't guess right on all these things the first time, we'll have to repeat these studies. Uh, and by the time we get the drug to market, if we have to repeat studies, it'll go generic the first day and we'll never recover our development costs. And uh, there's been subsequent studies with prostaglandins and liver disease, especially in um, hepatitis. And it's been found to be uh, in these small, smaller studies to be effective. But of course, it will never hit the market as uh, a drug that is specific for liver disease simply because the company is not going to undertake it under those conditions. So it's, it's very sad. And, and there's many drugs like this, many, many drugs. So, right. It's very hard. Unfortunately, it's very hard to make the case for uh, opportunity costs because it's, you know, you, you have to use your imagination to, to, to think. But uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the uh, putting su such rigid, rigid boundaries and uh, definitions about what is effective and what not, um, in, in doing so, we forego uh, obtaining a lot of natural knowledge about different compounds that yes. we could get very quickly and on a very large scale. Mm -hmm. And, and it, that is really, it's the lifeblood of, of science and of, of new knowledge. Yes. And now it's a paradox because in, in, the, um, uh, in the name of trying to remain very scientific, uh, supposedly, I mean, I put on, uh, under, on, on quotes, quote-unquote scientific, uh, and having these demands uh, to show scientifically that there's effectiveness with a p-value of x and whatnot. But actually, first of all, these definitions are arbitrary. The p-value thing is a, is a total mess. I mean, all the, all the statisticians will, will tell you that. And then, uh, and then we, 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 um, we forego a huge opportunity to, to obtain very good knowledge and new leads on, on a lot of different things. Um, but on the other hand, what I found, so, so it's a hard case to make because people, you, you know, you can't see it un, unless, you know, you can't see these treatments. But you can see what, what you showed about uh, aspirin and other compounds, that, that how knowledge that, you know, we, we knew uh, aspirin to be effective in preventing heart, heart attacks for, for 15 years before 
people were even allowed by the FDA to talk about it. That, that's, that's, right. that's amazing. That's, that's right. amazing. And, and there's no question. I mean, I think to my mind, I mean, there's no question that if, if the word was, was uh, because now just everybody, every, every person on the street knows that, you know, you have, yeah. you have chest pain, you take aspirin. I mean, I think it, it's well known. And so I, I, I it, it makes sense to me that, that, um, that for sure many people uh, have died that wouldn't have died otherwise had the, the knowledge about aspirin been um, more widely disseminated. Well, that's right. And, and the same is true for, you know, that's an off-label use of aspirin, but another, or it was at least until recently. And, but there's other things like nutrients that really make a difference. And uh, the folic acid story is a, is a really huge one for me because it actually, in my mind, created an American thalidomide. In other words, the amendments actually caused the birth defects they were trying to get rid of or prevent. And the way that this happened is we knew in the early 80s that folic acid could prevent neural tube defects. And, of course, these are very difficult uh, birth defects because a lot of the children have to be institutionalized. Some are aborted because you can test for it in utero. So the FDA told the folic acid manufacturers that they should not talk about this at all or they would be prosecuted because they hadn't gone through all these hoops, these 14 or 12 or whatever it would have been at that time, all these regulatory hoops. And so, of course, they didn't. And then the Center for Disease Control, another government agency, started recommending that all women of childbearing potential take a certain amount of folic acid a day. I think it was 800 micrograms that they were uh, recommending uh, because you know, you couldn't count on getting enough in food and you needed it. The women needed it the first month or two of pregnancy when they might not even realize they were pregnant. And the FDA told the folic acid manufacturers that if they even mentioned the CDC's recommendation, they would be prosecuted. And so it was many years before American women were aware that if they were of childbearing potential, they should be taking uh, this B vitamin regularly. And um, what ended up happening in other countries where the manufacturers were allowed to advertise or where the government made uh, an attempt to really push this, women virtually overnight started taking folic acid and, and you know, birth defects were prevented in those countries. In, in the U.S. in the mid-90s, the FDA finally said, okay, well, I'm not, we're not going to allow the folic acid manufacturers to talk about this, but what we'll do is we'll require grain products to be fortified with folic acid, which of course you don't get the right dose necessarily unless you eat a lot of grain products, right? So it was found to be not very effective and that's not surprising. But the, the sad thing is we probably had at least 10,000, perhaps as many as 20,000 babies either born or aborted because of this one restriction that the FDA put on a very a relatively safe nutrient. And I say relatively safe, everything has consequences, but of course, most natural products are a lot safer than artificial products that we sometimes see in the drug industry. Because of course, in order to get the patent protection that we need to recoup our costs, we have to tweak it by putting a little chemical group on it or something so that, uh, so that we can recover our costs. And, and we didn't used to have to do that before these amendments. When I, when I came to the Upjohn company in the mid-70s, we were still developing compounds that didn't have patents. And, uh, but then after a few years, as the 1962 amendments 
kicked in and and spread because they're they're set up so that they kind of metastasize every year. Uh, as as this happened, management told us don't even suggest that we develop compounds without patents anymore. So Mary, you're you're actually suggesting that direct to consumer uh, advertising may uh, may have some benefit. Blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it can yes because you know especially especially the people who are are poor, uh, they get a lot of their information from the television and drug ads at least kind of alert them there might be something out there for their condition. And there's been studies about whether or not physicians um, will prescribe something just because the patient steps forward and asks about it. And I think most of them are pretty well shown that doctors are a little more discriminating than that, which of course you would expect. So. Um, I think the claim that the direct-to-consumer advertising uh, creates the demand for drugs by the patient and that doctors will acquiesce to that, while it might have a grain of truth, it's not the norm. I mean, doctors, you know, they have to be careful if they're right. prescribed. Plus, it's not necessarily a bad thing to prescribe. It's, it's also not necessarily a bad thing to prescribe the medication. I mean, you know, it may be that the doctors that's have right. to learn something, you know. Mary, what that's do you right. What do you think, just as a follow-up to this whole uh, advertising, what, what, what do you think about the uh, regulations that surround advertising? Are you a fan of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the very fast uh, list of side effects that uh, seem to come out? <laughs> well, of course, the there? reason that big list is there is because the FDA demands it. If, if manufacturers air an ad and the FDA doesn't like it, um, their remedy is to seize all the product. This is pretty punishing for the pharmaceutical companies, so they, they don't put those ads on unless the FDA has reviewed it and given their stamp of approval. And of course, that means there's a lot of back and forth going on. So a lot of what the drug companies spend on advertising aren't um, paying the um, TV stations for the ads. Well, what they're doing is uh, basically paying uh, you know, their regulatory people to interface with the FDA and go back and forth and back and forth until you know, everything's satisfactory. So that long list, I think, really kind of numbs people to the idea that there might be side effects. Because every time you see an ad, there's such a long list of side effects, usually including death, that you go, well, it must have some value or it wouldn't be being sold, right? <laughs> so you kind of ignore those. And that's, that's sad because really, there, most drugs have certain side effects that happen to a lot of people, and those are the ones that people should be aware of, not this big laundry list um, where there's a lot of rare side effects in it because, you know, that's, that's not what, like I said, that sort of makes a person feel like this list is worthless, and that's not the idea. <laughs> Um, Mary, what's, uh, you said you're hopeful. Can we explore that a little bit more? What's, what's the path forward here? Well, the reason I'm hopeful is that we're all affected. You know, a lot of regulations are put into effect for the benefit of a small segment of businesses, you know, and the cartels grow from that or it puts their competitors out of business. But in this case, we are all affected by getting new medicines to market. And if they're not there, you know, we can't get them. So, and, and this is not just you and I, this is every doctor, every patient, every regulator, um, Congress, everybody is affected. So it's in all of our best interests to make sure that we have 
good drugs. And also that we have good prevention, which right now it's, it's a little more difficult to have good prevention because of the restrictions that the FDA places on foods and supplements. For example, if, if you make a health, if the manufacturer makes a health claim for a food or supplement, it turns it into a drug in the eye of the FDA and the courts have agreed. So for example, when cherry growers and um, Diamond Walnut started putting scientific studies up on their website showing that the components in their foods were beneficial, uh, the FDA wrote them warning letters and said, oh, you just made your product into a drug. So now you have to go through all these regulations. <laughs> and actually, Diamond Walnuts was sued for false advertising by um, an enterprising group of attorneys and actually won a big settlement from them. Uh, so, you know, this is, this is not just, um, you know, paperwork that doesn't mean anything. This has a big consequence. Sure. And, and, and so, you know, this is... this. And, and what's so crazy about this? Okay, so if you... If you think about it, we all need food or we die, right? So obviously food has components in it that help promote health. <laughs> and if you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> right, right. No, it is, it, it's, it is crazy. But now there are, I mean, obviously very um, uh, entrenched uh, interests uh, at this point. I mean, it's been, you know, 50 years, 60 years since the amendments were passed and so forth. Uh, do you see anything uh, among uh, legislators, uh, you know, any, any inclination to try to change things? I mean, is there any hope uh, on, a, on, a, on a political level uh, for this to change? Well, I think so. And the reason is that, for example, when Right to Try went through all of these different states, it was approved in 40 states, they got about 90 to 95% of the legislatures saying, yes, we should do this. And so I think the... Now, I think that the concept of letting people choose, especially if they're terminally ill, is, is pretty well accepted. And so I think that we will see more of that. In fact, we are, we are seeing that because patients are upset, just like we saw with the AIDS epidemic and we saw the cancer patients suing the FDA. This is not going to go away because people want to live longer. This is and healthier right. <laughs> and right. and with the internet we know that we're not being told everything that we should be being told and that's right. why and, and it's not you know it's not just the uh, uh, unavailability of, of life-saving drugs uh, but also the cost of the ones that are available which uh, oh, yes. you, know, you, yes. you talk about in your book uh, extensively uh, yes because now they you know we, we're not only is the development time so long and so onerous but also it's put out of business, as you, as you just mentioned, you know, many companies. So now there's an oligarchy of uh, just a few pharmaceutical companies. Yes, and, big, um, big pharma. Yeah, big pharma develops the drugs. We have a lot of little biotechs that then license to big pharma at great cost to them. But also we have now the uh, biotechs trying to raise the money to get most of the studies themselves so they don't have to basically turn over all their hard work to big pharma. So it's, 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 uh, it's sad, but this cost element is really important too. And in healing our, I mean, sorry, in death by regulation, I showed that the, um, what we pay at the pharmacy for a brand name drug is directly correlated to the cost of 
research and development, and most of it's development at this point, meeting the FDA regulations. So in other words, um, and, and it's very tightly correlated. For those who are technically inclined, the R-square is 0.94. I, I, I saw a tweet. I saw a tweet that you, uh, you know, a reply tweet that uh, you wrote to, to our president, to President Trump, uh, <laughs> making that point because uh, a few days ago he was uh, accusing Pfizer, I think, I think it was Pfizer, of being uh, too greedy yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and pricing. So, so that's right. They're, they're not making those, you know, they're not, um, I mean, there still is enough competition that uh, yeah. they're not putting those prices, uh, but, you know, completely, they're not completely arbitrary. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting though, how the high prices are, uh, are portrayed by the media. Meaning for instance, yeah. the, the, the case, the, the, the case that everyone knows about the Daraprim case for toxoplasmosis an orphan drug, which has been around forever, a dollar a pill, uh, touring, uh, the touring company and Martin Shkreli, who's the CEO of the touring company licensed that, uh, and now raised the price a massive amount. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the, the whole framing of that in the media is so interesting. Right? It's not I mean, how, much, how much coverage went into the regulations that allowed Martin Shkreli to do that. Well, nothing, because, you know, it's really actually hard for even a dedicated journalist to yeah. dig this information out because drug companies aren't going to talk about it. Because if word gets back that they're saying regulations harm you in this way and that way and this way, and this gets back to the FDA, they're doomed. So it's not going to happen. I mean, if I were still working in the industry, I could not have written this book. So, and of course, the, the Daraprim situation, uh, it, it really illustrates how these amendments encourage exploitation because what these little companies these investment companies are doing now is they're going around and watching for generic drugs that only have one manufacturer left and that happens frequently because you know these drugs really don't make a whole lot of money for the original manufacturer but usually the original manufacturer isn't going to hike the price because you know their focus is on new drugs right so they're not messing with us but when and, and there's, there was a big push by the FDA, I think about 10, 15 years ago, to crack down on generic manufacturing. So they made it much more expensive for a lot of companies to stay in business in the generics, so they went out. And now when there's only one left, these investment companies come and they get exclusive licensing and then they hike the price. And this is, this is what happened with EpiPen too. As soon as the FDA finally allowed competition by approving other products, <laughs> EpiPen started um, having these huge coupons for their patients because otherwise they would have lost right. their entire market. Right. Right. Mary, what, what are your, so what you, you've laid out some, uh, I mean, so, the, you know, the pushback is, look, how, how, how do we go about making sure that uh, you don't have a scenario that, that you had in the late 1800s and early 1900s? Yeah. Um, what do you do to keep the uh, American population? I mean, you know, the charge of the government is to keep Amer the American population safe from diethylene glycol, you know, killing children or thalidomide. So, how do we how do we go about how do we go about doing this? Is there a, a safe way forward that you can you see? Yes, I mean the easiest way, uh, of course, if you could do it, would be to repeal the 1962 amendments because we already had enough regulation at that point to ensure that we were going to get all the safety and effectiveness that we could. But but the problem with that is so many parts of the amendments now have been codified in case law as the FDA has sued and gotten the courts to agree, for example, that making a health claim for a food or drug, or food or supplement makes it a drug. So 
I think the only way totally out of it now is not only to appeal the amendments, but to take away the approval power of the FDA and turn it into a certifying agency. The difference between regulatory and certifying is regulatory, if the regulatory agency says, no, you can't use this drug, you're stuck, you can't get it. But if a certifying agency says, we think it's not a good drug, you can still take it if you want. It's still available to you because you, the consumer, are king. And that's, of course, what we, what we want. The consumer, hopefully in consultation with their healthcare provider, uh, can choose which drugs they feel they want to take a risk on. Or if, if people say, oh, I only want to trust the FDA, it's still there as a certifier. So they can wait until the FDA gives their seal of approval. And I think that's, the, that's probably the most reasonable way to do it because everyone gets what they want. The FDA can, you know, give its advice. People can take it. But if they don't want to, they can get the drug anyway. Right. And, and, and you're right. I think with the, um, the right to try movement, you know, gaining momentum, uh, it seems like a natural uh, evolution. Yes. You know, yes. Uh, because it, it to say, why just for terminally ill people? Why not for other people who are very sick yeah. and so forth? And, yeah. And, and then why not for everybody? Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, obviously, you're not going to take it. If you're taking a drug for acne, you're not going to take something that hasn't been well tested because, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But right. if you're dying from cancer, that's a whole different story. Mary, there's been a wonderful conversation, really enlightening. The book is engrossing. It's, it's, um, uh, and it's so easy to read. You know, the chapters are short. Each chapter, you know, covers a specific point. It's very well documented. So I will encourage uh, everybody to, uh, to read it. Again, Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It, available at, uh, on Amazon at every, every yes, fine bookstore. Yes. Amazon, um, ruart.com, my website, right? so, ruart.com. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, and we'll have that, uh, all of this on, on the show notes to this episode, which will be found at uh, akadankoka.com slash episode 15. Any final words? Any, another question, Anish, before we, we end? <laughs> well, uh, I just want, oh, go ahead, Anish. Did you no, have go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I, I do encourage your listeners to um, at least go to my website. There's a lot of good stuff there. And of course, you can ask me a question from there. Very good. Thank you so much. And, uh, and there's so much to talk about. I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll have another opportunity to have you on again and, and dig some more into these things. I'd okay. love that. Thank you. Good day Thanks. to your listeners. Yep. Take care. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.